0: Hello and welcome to the Transfer Windows European Super League. This is the pod that brings you the news before it becomes news. If you needed any more proof, it was 18 months ago we first started this debate. I am thrilled to say Roger Mitchell, former Chief Executive of the Scottish Premier League, who started a debate and gave us details and structure and also uh, a whole lot of insight into what would happen when the day came around, which it did on Monday of this week. Roger, uh, we've done two podcasts now with you in which uh, your information has been proven to be absolutely correct uh, and we thank you for that first and foremost and for coming on the pod today my, pl- my pleasure my pleasure and also i suppose i want to get right down to the crux is it going to happen um
1: look uh i, I don't i i don't really like this you know i i've kind of like um put my money on 36 uh number <laughs> and it's come up because that gives an idea that um i, I had some either kind of like incredible luck or um Uh, some kind of insight. The reality is this was inevitable. That's the word we've always used, uh, we three together on these podcasts. Uh, A train that left the station, I would say a generation ago, Um, 1998 was the first time I saw the train uh, leaving the UEFA conference. Um, And we've seen a a generation, two decades uh, of movements towards the ultimate end game. And and when you deal with momentum in life, you shouldn't be surprised that the momentum continues, you know? Uh, so I think this absolutely was inevitable. The timing uh, could have been a little bit earlier. It could still be a little bit later. Uh, but, but what I say is this... Um, there's, there's a lot we can get into here and a lot of people who are saying things that are not correct and I think are rather silly. But let me start with with this statement. Um, in, in the world of football that we grew up with, um, football was financed by the local businessman Made Good who was able to finance his club. Um, big money changed that. And we now know, you guys know better than me on the on the transfer podcast, that you know capex around uh, half a billion with a B um, is involved when you're thinking about an Mbappe transfer with his wages as well. That goes beyond the the scope of the local businessman. So who came in? Um, we know who came in: uh, oligarchs, uh, nation states, uh, private equity, big finance, American sports investors etc. Why do we think they're not gonna change the the asset that they've bought in their image? Why why would we have the arrogance to think that they would come in, they would leave their credit card behind the bar and let us go willy-nilly the way we've always done? So will it happen? We'll go on to that in a minute because that, that's all about politics and major, major power plays now. But honestly, I'm really surprised at this hand-wringing that you're getting mainly in England, because those of us from the smaller leagues and the smaller countries, we've been living with this pain for 25 years. All of our teams were, and here's the words, excluded unfairly from the the football pyramid because the monies all gravitated towards the big five leagues. How do you think we feel today when we see the people down south who, let's be real, real honest, have had the best of both worlds? They've had a wonderful domestic league that became a global league and they got to play in Europe as well. And then they made sure that nobody else got to play in Europe because they got four qualifying spaces guaranteed. You remember that word guaranteed? That's the word they don't like about the European Super League, the guaranteed uh, entry. They've had that for the last X years. So I would really hope today when we talk about your question, will it happen, um, that we can talk about it coldly with the way you do without getting on some bandwagon of virtue signaling about how dewy-eyed you love the game. The game changed 25 years ago. I,
2: I think this is a, a very important point, and it's I, mean, I, think I want to say something here, which is about, <laughs> rather, from, rather than primarily analytical, but just as a lover of football and someone who's made my life in football for the last 20 years, the club I support has been in Europe's elite club competition once in over 100 years of history. They reached the semi-final of that competition and came up against one of the the moneyed elite at the time, AS Roma, who bribed the referee to prevent my team from reaching the final. And and that, I don't think, is an entirely uncommon uh, occurrence in European football in the past. Since then, the restructuring of European football, Scottish football and English football, because the 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 power the change in the Premier League, which happened in the kind of way we are seeing, is happening with the Super League now. It was the elite clubs saying we want a bigger share of the the, the, the revenue. We want to organise the competition ourselves. We are going off alone, and the rest of you can just get on with it. What that's exactly what we're seeing now. That resulted, as you're saying, Roger, in Scottish football and a number of other leagues being marginalised. The Champions League established in 1992. Then you have this this move to guarantee places um, to the extent where we now have a Champions League where 18 of the 24 group stage places and the lion's shares of the revenue are shared between just five countries. My club cannot, you know, Dundee United, they cannot realistically ever aspire to even competing in the elite European club competition. There, the, the Scottish League is in a state now where there are only two teams who can win it, Rangers and Celtic. The teams that win it, they have to go through two qualifying rounds to get into a Champions League where they don't have the resources to compete to win the title if by some incredible miracle they were to actually win it, they'd be paid less money from the revenues of that season's tournament than the clubs who, several of the clubs who have those guaranteed 18 to 24 places. So, so the idea that we have some kind of pyramid, meritocratic pyramid in European football at present well said. is wrong. However, on the other side, I will say, I still love football and I recognise that the Champions League is the highest technical and the, the most um, interesting football to watch and I don't have a stake as a supporter in that competition anymore but it doesn't mean I don't enjoy the competition and I can't see that the shift in that direction has resulted in better football on the pitch along with an, uh, you know, a number of other changes, things that for example Seth Blatter did in changing the rules of the game to protect attacking players. So th- there's, I think you have to separate out as a football lover, whether your team has a place at the table. Because realistically, there are actually very few teams who have a competitive place at the table in the current setup. So let's talk analytically about what is actually changing here.
1: That's right. You know, the reaction down south has been binary. Oh, my God, the Antichrist has arrived. Uh, We must stop them. We must mobilise If you look at this analytically, as Duncan has just suggested, if we're assuming, and I think we are assuming this, that uh, the elite clubs are saying that they want to play in their domestic leagues, the only thing that changes is that from a newly devised Swiss model Champions League controlled by UEFA, we go to a relatively similar set of clubs controlled directly by themselves. One could argue, if you were in the the, the central courts of the world, one could argue that all this is about is a power play to disintermediate UEFA from the running of the elite tournament. Everything else more or less stays the same.
2: I, th- I think it's important to emphasise that there will be more money going to the top clubs and you have Florentino Perez on record talking about that and, and explaining the need for it and, and talking about the, the huge losses that those clubs have incurred because of what you described, Roger, in the last podcast we did, with, we did on this as the Fran- football's Franz Ferdinand moment. Uh, the yep. the COVID pandemic, so that there is a an economic incentive for them to do this, but they also believe that they can produce a better product and produce more money for themselves and for the game in general by doing it. They're not switching, I think, simply to gain control. It's to gain control and change the economic structure of of the Super League while while doing that. Um. And I think I, my personal view is, and we've, we've seen the president of UEFA talking, um, Alexander Cheferin talking about this and being extremely aggressive and very personal and even talking about how it, what he was saying about um, senior individuals and the clubs involved wasn't personal, except maybe for Agnelli, who ironically, he, he happens to be the godfather of the, of the Juventus um, chairman's um, daughter. Um, you, see, you see in those comments from Jeffrey, someone who has been suckered into a corner of presenting the Swiss model Champions League, which is clearly an inferior competitive product to the, the, the Champions League we, we presently have. He wants, and, they, and UEFA have now voted this through uh, as of yesterday, a competition in which everyone goes into a giant league where a couple of teams have guaranteed entry depending on their status, regardless of how they do in that, in that uh, competition version, where there isn't a group stage as such. There, there is a, a seeding system which, we, which will be um, dubious as to who gets to play against who. So a seeding system decides the, the, who you meet in the league. And you don't play everyone. Equally home and away as a, as a standard league system has always been in football. And then you go into the knockout round stages. Now, I know why Chefreen did it because he wanted to keep these superpowers on board and he wanted UEFA to retain control of the competition and to retain the revenues. But actually, what he's been suckered into presenting, and that's probably the best interpretation, if he genuinely thinks that's a better product. Than the current Champions League, then actually I don't think he deserves to be president of UEFA in the first place.
0: A different side to this issue. If um, this is football's France-Ferdinand moment, should the uh, European Super League change her name to the Serbian Black Hand Super League? With Gianni Agnelli <laughs> being Gavvilo Prinkep. Uh, that's one for all you historians out there. Um, I just want to ask you, Roger, like in Austro-Hungary, at the start of the century, the moral indignation and outcry against those who are revolutionaries has been quite startling in terms of its unity, in terms of the aggressive language and threats that have been used. And I have to say, I I look at it and think to myself, the hypocrisy of all this is incredible. UEFA and FIFA in the past 10 years have had to expel their presidents from football for corruption, for taking money out of football, which was illegal, as well as several members of executive committees, World Cup organising committees, who've all been guilty of taking bribes. And what this is about for UF and FIFA is purely self-preservation. It's got nothing to do with the good of football. It's a power play. That's right. It's a power play, and and this is where,
1: uh, whilst to take Duncan's point, I hadn't reflected on that, but maybe uh, they they did maneuver them very cutely with the Swiss model to then trump it with the breakaway. Uh, that might have been very cute, but where I think the 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 big clubs have done very very badly is that they are having a nightmare in terms of PR in these first forty eight hours. If if I was uh, advising them, um. In this kind of way that I operate, I would have been saying to them, first thing is to explain to people the difference, as I said before, between the Swiss model and the breakaway leak isn't that much. The difference is only in control. And then I would say, uh, so we need to make sure that we are seen as best of custodians than UEFA. So why don't we start publishing the rap sheet of the last 30 years, 50 years even, of the people who have been led away in handcuffs from the, the confederations and from FIFA? And I think I will win that PR battle. And then where can they they come at me at? They can say, oh, you're keeping all the money for yourself, Whereas UEFA and FIFA uh, pay down the pyramids, and we've got the the trickle down of the solidarity pay. This is all true. So, what has every breakaway league? And as 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 you said at the top of the show, I was part of one of the few of them. Uh, what have they always done? They leave a dowry. You can call it what you want. You can call it bribery. You can call it um, you know uh, uh, sugar coating payments to make the paint go away. But basically, what you do. We did it with the, the SFL, the, the league we broke away from, the Premiership have done it to the Players' Union, they've done it to the EFL, and they've done it to the Football Foundation and a whole lot of other bodies. The the, the PR from these big clubs on Sunday, because they leaked it very clearly to three or four different people, should have said, this is merely about control. Nothing else substantial is going to change To the football fans' world, we think we control it better because tell you what, see when you look at the rap sheet of UEFA and FIFA, we think we can do it better and we will pay even more down to the football family in solidarity payments that are, by the way, transparent and will be meritocratic. We will not be in the game of paying the Serbian FA uh, certain money so that they vote for us next time around because that is how UEFA and FIFA work. If they had done that and we're recording this on Tuesday, the last 48 hours would have been significantly different.
2: I agree with you on that. It's interesting you mentioned the PR because I understand that uh, the Super League has hired one of T- Theresa May's uh, former PR advisors to, to deal with their communications. So
1: That's the woman that was dancing on the stage, right? Yeah. Yeah, strong and stable leadership.
2: Yes. That, that, yeah. that,
1: that, that, how did that go for the The robot Teresa? dance on the stage. How did that work out, <laughs> Teresa?
2: But I, I think, look, talking to people involved in this and talking to people who have had a very close eye on the European Super League and the, the changes that were happening in football, um, I think the most important thing to note about the response, the aggressive response to the Premier League, the aggressive response of Sky who stand to lose um, very important broadcasting contracts and the the super aggressive response of Alexander Sheffrean, who's supposed to be negotiating with people he's called liars and um, lacking in, in moral substance to, the to fix this. It is... When you hear those parties being so aggressive immediately after an announcement, it suggests that they're in... A desperate situation where they feel that the only court they can appeal to is the court of public opinion. Normally, we, I mean we've had years and, and Roger you will know far better than me because you're actively involved in these processes we've had years of Reformation in football, gradual changes to European club competitions. Uh, let's call
1: it what it is: appeasement of the bigger clubs for twenty-five years, giving bit by bit away. Sudetenland, uh, yes. Czechos, uh, but, but It's
2: been appeasement. And but guess it, what happens it's done, with appeasement? It's done, it's done in back rooms. It's not done with aggressive. Uh, you're right, no, you're, But your major point is correct. Negotiating with.
1: We, we all knew on Sunday night at midnight that when we started seeing the reaction that this was real this time because the coordinated responses were full of lashing out panic and that's when you knew that this was going to happen this time.
0: Let me just share an anecdote, anecdote with you guys. Um, before the last FIFA presidential election, I travelled to Switzerland to see then UEFA President Michel Platini And I asked him directly, is he going to run against Blatter? And he said to me in those very plush offices overlooking the lake, I've got my big house here. Sepp's got his big house in Zurich. Uh, I've got expenses that I get every day that I couldn't even spend, never mind my salary. Why would I want to change things? And I think, and I'm sure, and Roger and Duncan, we've all been... In the company of UEFA and FIFA delegates at different conferences, in Champions League matches, at World Cups, these guys enjoy a very, very luxury lifestyle, which they do not want to give up. And when I say say self-preservation, it's exactly what I mean. They're not trying to preserve the actual entity. It's their own jobs they're trying to hold on to because they know that their privilege will, will no longer be quite as they are now should they lose the top clubs. And hence the aggressive language, hence the threats of legal action, et cetera, et cetera, because they know what's coming. Um, from the the big 12 that have already signed up uh, to the ESL, um, they're controlled in the most part by billionaire owners who whose interest is to make money, as it is in most corporate situations. Uh, And I think the indignation of the fans and of, I think, ironically, of politicians uh, is that, oh, football was born out of the working class, Uh, these guys are only in it for themselves and they're trying to change the moral fabric of the game that was built uh, by the working class. These are the same politicians who've just handed out billions in contracts exploiting the COVID crisis to their mates. (laughs) <laughs> they're talking about greed and self interest of others you're right the the politician politicians
1: are the same all over the world and, and there's votes in in and and with this line just now um there's votes to be won um so I, i'm not going to comment on the politicians that they, they're just predictable about what they're going to say and how they're going to act maybe we'll come back to that bit in a minute about how they're going to act but let's think about the fans right um the fans who to a man, are uh, you know on the barricade shouting that we won't, we won't, and um, we won't tolerate this. Let me ask you this: We talked about this the last time. Big bad guys with a lot of money. All of a sudden, are the are the are the are the, are the Antichrist? Newcastle United and Saudi Arabia. Did they did the Newcastle fans want to take the bad man's money about a year ago? Um, or, or, or were they starting to say well you know I'm not so sure this is a regime that does that and the next thing they're only interested in soft power and sport mailing And uh, let's be honest with fans what they really care about is whether you're going to put down a wedge to buy me new players that is all they care about
2: well I, I, I put a little survey out on Twitter before this podcast deliberately to ask supporters of the, the Dirty Dozen as Reen has referred to them, um, whether they would support their club if the Super League happened. And the majority were saying they would not, but it wasn't as as definitive as the, the kind of two-a-man images we've seen. Uh, I think 42% against 48% is where it stands at the moment. You talk about... Newcastle United supporters I did find it very ironic that Manchester City's official supporters club put a statement out opposing these moves um, talking about those involved have zero regard for the game's traditions um, when obviously uh, nation state ownership and outspending everyone in the history of football has a lot of regard for for the game's traditions but look let, let's talk about the practicalities of, of where this yeah. goes because yeah. the Super League are very confident that it will make this happen. Um, they have a huge uh, reserve of cash that's being bankrolled by JP Morgan. They have um, guaranteed money for the founding members, which isn't necessarily 350 million each. It changes. Um, some of the clubs will get 350 million, others will get less, but they've, they've agreed that structure in advance. They are saying to the national leagues, we do not want to leave. Um, We are happy to remain within the national league. So you get, basically, you have have the value of us being present in your league for selling broadcasting rights remaining. Um, And uh, they believe that legally um, they will be able to pursue under European competition laws. And there are precedents here, very recent precedent, uh, where the Ice Skating Union tried to prevent um, uh, top professionals in their sport from competing in a competition that it did not um, uh, control, and uh, and the, the the General Court of the European Union declared that that was against competition law, and that these these ice skaters should be allowed to participate in a, a competition organised by other people who wanted to pay players to get involved in sport you have the threat from UEFA that they will prevent players from playing in the Champions League presumably irrelevant because there won't be a Champions League for players from this club you have the threat that they might be excluded from European competition uh, at national team although UEFA has not gone so far as to say we're going to kick you out of our big money-making championship that we're going to play this summer. And they have the threat that UEFA are prepared to make that they will be banned from the, the next World Cup. Where, Roger do you, How, Roger, do you see that panning out and, and the, the armoury that the objectors have to try and get... What they, I mean, they they're openly saying they want a negotiated settlement. They're not trying to keep the status quo. They they want to try and rein back what the Super League is proposing.
1: That's a great question. Um, let Let's start with the legal side of it. I think you're correct exactly to talk about. um these so-called football rules sports rules that uh, that have come down from the IOC and FIFA for years that have been immune to uh, natural law employment law everything like that um that world i think is ending uh, and, and, and you know, again, ironic that Man City, um, w- with UEFA, basically uh, bitch slapped them over financial fair play and they'll probably remember that lesson for a long, long time. I think legally UEFA and FIFA will lose. More importantly is what you say um, about The economics, my favourite phase, follow the money. Uh, UEFA has got two revenue streams. FIFA even worse. They've only only got one, the World Cup. Uh, UEFA's got two. It's got the European Championships and it's got the Champions League. The Champions League, we're talking about them losing. Um, So you're at risk of losing one. So you go all in and throw in the second one at the same time. Uh, That really is all in for UEFA. Um, when I don't think they've got the legal basis to do it. And if they lose both their revenue streams, the house on the lake on Neon and all the associated national uh, bodies, the FA, the SFA, the Italian F, all of them go bankrupt basically overnight. So do you really, really want to threaten me that you're not going to have the best players playing in uh, the European Championships, why don't you speak to your broadcasters and sponsors before threatening me like that? Because I tell you what, if my players who are contracted to me, uh, who you don't pay any money for, by the way, when you get them, uh, they're contracted to me, they're my employee, I will say where they play and don't play, you try and negotiate your way out of your broadcast and sponsor contracts that you have got for the Euros this year, and for the World Cup next year. It's a very weak hand that they are playing with emotion and anger. And how is it going to come about? It's going to to be, if it's resolved at all, resolved, in my opinion, by a very small country that is probably
0: the the negotiator and the moderator here. Just, I mean, can you imagine... uh... Qatar's response to missing out on the best players in the world playing in their World Cup, having spent nearly a billion dollars on stadia and infrastructure uh, to uh, put the World Cup on. And that's only just the state of infrastructure, that's not even the bribes. I would say, I would say um,
1: which one of the big clubs has not uh, declared its hand yet? PSG hasn't said anything. PSG is owned by Qatar. Uh, Qatar owns uh, BN uh, that has got contracts with many many leagues around the world including the Champions League and Qatar as you rightly say Ian is going to be having a seminal geopolitical event that is already bringing together arabs and jews uh, in that part of the world they obviously are absolutely in most invested in of this of anybody and you know they are uh, sitting on the sidelines, probably working very, very hard d- d- diplomatically. They're a small country and they know politics, they know how to move with um, the way politicians move. and you know, I think if there is a negotiated settlement out of this, it's going to be negotiated uh, in Doha. that would be my um, that would be my bet.
2: I can add to that I understand that some of the money that that uh, JP Morgan are handling to to bankroll this league comes from Middle East sources but you know, let, let's i mean let's talk about that international tournament ban and and the quality of leverage that gives UEFA and FIFA. How many players when given the choice between uh, signing a contract for one of the Dirty Dozen and whichever clubs are in, other clubs are involved in the Super League who have substantial extra financial resource to play with, chooses not to play for one of those clubs, take considerably less money to play in an inferior league because they want to play in a Euros um, or a, a World Cup. We, we, we're in a generation where a lot of players find international football uh, an added burden when they're being pushed harder than ever in terms of playing time and harder than ever in, in terms of performance on the field. As you said, Roger, the clubs have to pay for the players. Um, so the clubs in the main would rather not have that international comp- competition, apart from the marketing value it adds to them. So I, I don't see that as a particularly strong threat. Let's go to the Premier League. The Premier League threat at present is we will kick you out of the Premier League if you go ahead with this. How much does that take off the Premier League's resources? Everything. Duncan,
1: you... Duncan, Duncan, Duncan. Any of, any of us that know the, the finances and the business models of sport know a truth that we've said in various different sources over the last two years. The big six in, the, in, the, in England... And call it this dirty dozen, call it the top 20 in Europe, generate 90% of the value. We need to let that sink in for your listeners. They generate 90% of the value we saw in Scotland. We've seen it in England. You go to the news desk of any newspaper or website and they write articles for the top six teams. Yeah. The the, the, UEFA and FIFA need the top 20 clubs much more than vice versa. And it really scares me that you've got a man who has probably been a little bit naively duped, um, uh, who's now lashing out and saying, I spit on you here and you've got no dignity there. That's not you. The way you solve this, this is hardball. You got outmaneuvered in the in, in as I say, a journey that's been lasting twenty five years. It got to its denouement, and you got outmaneuvered. You just suck that up, and you get somebody to negotiate the best deal you can, and the best deal for UEFA and FIFA is that they get to save face with the new Breakaway League, a little bit like the way that the FA got to save face with the Premiership. It was called the FA Premier League for all of those old enough to remember it. Let's call it the the, the UEFA Elite Super League, right? We'll, we'll save their face by letting them call them that. They won't manage it, they won't monetize it, uh, and they get to keep the, the national teams. They get to keep uh, Euros next year. They get to keep uh, the World Cup and the domestic leagues get to protect their current contracts. That's the obvious negotiated solution. And get to and keep
2: and get to keep a, a secondary and tertiary competition, which they can continue. I was, I was going the to Champions say, gentlemen,
0: yeah. Do we think that UEFA will conti- like the Champions League will effectively become the championship of European football? and Europa league will, come league will become League One. So in some ways, Duncan's beloved Dundee United might get the chance to play in Europe once again if there are no uh, massive clubs getting in their way and monopolising the qualification or indeed guaranteed participation in those leagues.
1: These are the negotiated um, outcomes that, that smart people, cold, experience businessmen and women should be working to now and just cut, cool the jets for all this vitriol that's going on just now. UEFA is reacting badly. As I said earlier, I don't think the big clubs have dealt with this PR-wise in anything like the way they should have. But let's recognise something, everybody, please. There is now two products. I've said this a million times. Hollywood and Art House. You've got to let Hollywood be Hollywood, because here's the news. Most of the people talking about this are guys our age, and they're normally guys, and they're normally European white guys, right? The, the, the new generations don't think the way we do. They change their allegiance if Ronaldo goes from Real to Juve. Do we want to recognise that we have to set out football the way that deals with this? Or do we want to cling on to this ridiculously romantic idea of mining towns in the north of England challenging uh, the amateur status down in London? Come on, you know, this is the entertainment business. I've been saying this for a long, long time. It finally happened. What's the news?
2: I, look, I think, I think it's a very good point. I think I just want to underline that this isn't about merit, meritocracy. I, I'm not arguing that this is happening because it's right that Manchester United, Manchester City, Liverpool, Arsenal, Chelsea, Tottenham get guaranteed entry into the top club competition. Three of those teams have never won a European Cup. But pragmatically, realistically, that is the place that football has got itself into. And, and think about a Premier League shorn of those six clubs. And what it, what it is. Doesn't exist. It doesn't it's exist. It's Leicester City, Wolves, Everton competing for the title. <coughs> what, what's the marketing value of it? And also think about this. Rick Parry was intimately involved in the big picture, um, earlier attempt that those clubs made to, to garner more yes, of, he was. of the control, more of the resources of the Premier League as a response to COVID. Rick Parry is still involved with the EFL. If you have a negotiating stance, the Premier League has a negotiating stance, we are chucking you out of our competition because you are moving to the Super League. What is to stop those six clubs going to the EFL and saying, we would like to apply for membership of the EFL. We will make the championship into the de facto top league in England and the other clubs can decide if they want to join us or not. But the money is going to you guys now. And our presence is going to you guys now. And this is an EFL which is absolutely desperate for cash, has been fighting with the Premier League for months over um, compensation to keep them going through COVID. Um, Again, the real politic of this is entirely in the Super League camp's favour.
0: They've got all the the leverage, all the leverage, in. If that were the case, can you imagine the scramble to get relegated from the Premier League? (laughs) <laughs> it'd be, no, it'd be you're, you're co- right. competition reverse
1: <laughs> you, 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 that's exactly the scenario the, the, the six the six English teams that, that that were let's say excluded from the Premiership they, they take a little trip up um the M1 uh, and they pick up three or four teams from Scotland um they on their way back down again they pick up uh, Derby, Nottingham Forest uh, you, you know the usual suspects uh, and um Premiership's dead. These people. This is what really scares me. These people making dramatic threats are holding ten-seven offsuit, <laughs> and I don't think I don't think they realise, guys. I really don't think they realise.
0: Do you remember uh, Roger? We we obviously worked and lived through it, um, and this is relevant to what we've just been talking about. All the talk about Celtic and Rangers joining the English Premier League, and there was an argument in Scotland that that would make for a fairer, even playing field in the SPL so that other clubs would finally get to win the title uh, because they weren't up against the two Giants of Scottish football. So it was like, yeah, ta-ta, we don't mind if you leave because, you know, we'll get we'll pick up some of your fans and we'll get a chance to win a trophy, et cetera, et cetera. Maybe, just maybe the championship clubs will feel the same way. Or the other clubs in the Premier League. Of, of course, you know if you if
1: you take me back to nineteen ninety eight, um, two two major initiatives for us. The first one was the one you mentioned before, the Atlantic League, um, because it became clear to me that the situation in Scotland wasn't working for anybody. Celtic and Rangers couldn't keep compete in Europe, and nobody else could win the league, and that was the same in every small league. So I didn't appease i went out and i tried to make it a win win for everybody where the the top teams in each league would, would would create the atlantic league would pay a dowry to make nobody else worse off and you had full relegation and promotion the atlantic league uh, it, it, it's all there it's all in the public the public domain the, the second thing was um celtic and rangers in england you know uh, for exactly the same reason I genuinely believe, if you made a market research now of the family of football, what percentage of fans support clubs that have got probably 0% chance of winning silverware? I think that's quite a big percentage. They're already used to not winning They get their jollies Out of another way now It's either bonding with their dad on the stand Or their mates Or it's a social thing Or you know the one I hear so much Or we love to stick it the day we beat the big teams You know, every dog has its day They have rationalised out Their fandom in a way that's like that And I think they deserve more than that They should be competing In a league that is The right size for the them with homogeneous clubs where any of them can win at any point in time and this is the thing that I'll go to my grave with because I've lived this, football has been organised on stupid geographical rules with a geographical governance with a whole lot of butchers and bakers and candlestick makers running the the national association that prevented the natural rationalisation of the game to the way I've just described. I'm hopeful that now it will finally
0: come about. In what's been a seismic week for football, we're not even halfway through it. Um, Jose Mourinho was sacked from his third Premier League club when he left Tottenham Hotspur on Monday morning, no one can say that Daniel Levy doesn't know how to bury bad news. Uh, given that the Super League announcement has, <laughs> it's received very little coverage, uh, little shots of Josie leaving the training ground and infield, etc., etc. Duncan, we spoke on the podcast in the last couple of weeks about Josie being in trouble about some travails that he's had regarding players recruitment attitudes. Uh, his own demeanour has certainly depreciated in terms of his satisfaction with his job. Uh, he's called out players. Um, he's been uh, dissatisfied with the way the club have handled um, their recruitment. And he's not been given what he's asked for, uh, despite uh, not being overly commanding in terms of money being spent. Uh, you know him well, obviously. Um do you see this as the end of Josie in English football? Is there anywhere left for him to go?
2: Um I, I think it's probably unlikely that his next job is in English football. Um I know that he's very keen to work again. Mm-hmm. In fact he you know he was interviewed briefly yesterday and said that he had no need uh, for a break and no need for batteries. He mm-hmm. was asked whether he would take some time to mm-hmm to ch- recharge his batteries um, and I understand that, that he does have offers uh, to go elsewhere uh, he has people close to him advising him to take some time and recover from what has been probably the most intense period of his career given Covid and given the uh, the lack of a proper pre-season and that uh, Tottenham had played almost every week twice a week and sometimes even more uh, up until this stage of the season um, I think, look, we've talked about this quite a lot in the podcast. We flagged up that Julian Nagelsmann had offered himself to Tottenham as a replacement for Mourinho. We said that Mourinho for a couple of months now was unsure as to whether he would survive uh, the season and, and be there next season, was was taking it on pretty much a game-to-game basis and ens- and wanted to ensure he had the best finish possible. He targeted the Euro- Europa League, which ended in one of the worst defeats of his career, and he targeted the League Cup. And I think that's the one that is particularly painful for him, is that he's been prevented from having the opportunity to end Tottenham's 13-year trophy drought having gotten them to that League Cup final against Manchester City at the weekend. Um, I can tell you the information I have from people close to Mourinho is that ahead of that game, he would talked to Daniel Levy and he'd explained that he intended to rest two or three players um, of his, his most used players for the Premier League game against Southampton tomorrow night in order to get the team in the best possible condition for the League Cup final, and um, my information is that Levy had told him, no, I want you to play the strongest team possible against Southampton because league position is more important to us than winning that cup. Um, Now, the people close to Mourinho think that was more a, a form of provocation from Levy that he had decided he was going to change manager, um, we talked about the theory that it might be better for Levy to dismiss Mourinho before he had the opportunity to win the League Cup because it would be politically difficult to sack a manager who'd ended that trophy drought. So get it done now if you'd made the decision to change rather than um, let him uh, run the risk that Mourinho uh, has the the argument, well, I won the Cup and I was asked to win trophies um, to, to defend himself with. But... You know the people close to Mourinho think if he if he hadn't said that Levy would have used something else to provoke him and uh, and manufacture this dismissal. The decision had been made. Tottenham's um, view on this is that they wanted the best finish to the season, um, and that was the reason that they got rid of him. Um, I think, look, it, it's... It's been extremely difficult for him. I think you talked about recruitment and talked about not getting what he wanted. I think the more important factor here was that Levy hired Mourinho to turn Tottenham into Champions League contenders again and potential Premier League winners. They had their new stadium built. They expected to have massive extra revenue on tap. Their their, um, financial affairs were in very good order, very low-wage bill, big turnover, um, the potential to invest heavily in the squad to get it there and that was the project sold to Mourinho. Now that was taken away from Tottenham by COVID. No, you know, It wasn't Levy's decision, obviously. Um, he was responding as you'd expect him to respond by turning off the taps and spending and... Tottenham were probably hit harder than any other club in the Premier League, maybe in any other club in European football by COVID because they had invested a huge amount of capital, over a billion pounds, in building a stadium that needs obviously to be used to generate the extra revenue it was designed to be used. So I think that that's the background. There were other elements here. Players were complaining about Mourinho's management style, the, the way he his provocative coaching method. They were complaining about criticism he was making of them in press conferences. They were complaining about also not just Mourinho but other members of his staff, the way they handled themselves and the way they handled the players. Now, this is not all the players. This is some of the players. But as we've seen at Premier League club after Premier League club, as Mourinho has seen himself, when a significant chunk of the playing staff go to the the, run, the owners are, or the people running their club and say um, performances are bad because of the way that we are being coached and because of the way the manager is handling us usually the most efficient thing to do is to replace the coach the cheaper thing to do is to replace the coach rather than the players
0: Roger you've um, obviously observed football around Europe uh, very closely um, were you in Como when Mourinho was at Inter Milan? I was, I I was. I thought Uh, thought you would have been,
1: was he your neighbour? He was pretty, (laughs) yeah, he lived just above us,
0: yeah, yeah. And what have you made of the change in Jose Mourinho over the last decade in terms of... This is a
1: great
0: great question. It's a
1: great question, Ian, because I can't work this out. You know, I saw, like most guys uh, from our background, uh, Jose Mourinho uh, in his first... um, uh, job at Porto, at Porto and he was a little bit the nemesis of Celtic uh, under Martin O'Neill and he won the UEFA cup and the European cup uh, in consecutive years um then you know was an amazing breath of fresh air to the premiership total box office um put together a team at Chelsea that did everything that they did um and then as you say Ian um I have never seen Anybody dominate a football club the way Jose Mourinho did at Inter Milan, uh, dominate in a positive way. Uh, So uh, I would say that I have always tended to be uh, somebody who has um, excused anything that goes wrong with Jose as well, that's the price a little bit of when the genius goes a little bit off the rails. And, you know, I, I was of the opinion that he, he was a good match for Tottenham. I think uh, Duncan's right to say that certain things got in the way, but that's not an excuse. I probably have got to the stage now that um, Jose's age, you know, people change. And and I think I need to say that I think he has been um, consumed by his ego uh, as he has gotten older um you know when you set yourself out as you know i am the special one you know talking about bottles of wine um there is no scope to be a number 2 or a number 3 you've set a bar such that anything that isn't that will utterly destroy your your ego and i think that is what's happened consistently over the years that whilst I think he is still a wonderful man, a wonderful man-manager, a great football brain, I believe his ego has consumed him such that it has made him make a significant amount of mistakes. Um, that's the main cause of it. I think the second cause of it is that the game has probably moved on a little bit. You know, he um, was Probably we could I think we could probably say he was the last of the great man manager type patriarchs in the in, in the in the Ferguson style and the Jock Steen style and the Brian Clough style. He was the last one that could go in there and get people to perform as a kind of like siege mentality unit. Um Footballers have changed they 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 respond differently. There are a new generation of young men they They don't react in the same way. they'll talk back to you and and I think you know that together with the tactical way that it's all about possession now and data driven um I think that combination of stuff has been fatal for him and I say it with a very heavy heart. I believe he has been one of the main protagonists. Of association football for the last 20 years, if not the protagonist. And he has been absolute box office. And I really, I really am very sad it's how it's ended, but I believe
0: that he should probably just stop now. I've um, spoken to, been friends with, or interviewed more players than I can remember who Mourinho has managed. And uh, certainly, at Chelsea, the first time, uh, Internazionale, some at Real Madrid, because obviously he had some problems with some of the senior players there uh, throughout his tenure, um, have all been absolutely unified in saying that they love him, and they mean yes. love. It, they don't mean uh, I love him as a bloke. I love him, you know. Uh, they love him like they love their wives and their mothers, and their father. I, I, and their fathers. I think. I think maybe he's lost some of that. I spoke to a couple of people close at Tottenham to the dressing room uh, about what they thought was going wrong. This is before he was actually sacked, and they said that some of the players believe that Mourinho had lost patience with some of his players. Uh, that he um, he didn't uh, he wasn't willing to tolerate uh, either sloppiness or. Um, poor play or bad decision making, rather than coach them out of it, he just thought, oh, well, you're clearly not good enough. And of course, players hate that. Players hate to be slagged off like that or treated like that. And I think that's where he lost quite a lot of the confidence in the dressing room is because they saw him as an antagonist rather than as the father figure that he had been at other clubs. Um, maybe that's fair. Maybe it's not. We're not privileged. Everything that goes on, obviously, behind the scenes. But um, I see him actually, Duncan. I, I can see him taking the Portugal job. I think maybe that would suit him. I know that you believe he wants to work every day in club management, but I, I think it, that would be a new lease of life for him. Well,
2: we've talked on the podcast before about how Portugal have a, an incredible generation of Incredible of
1: generation. Incredible. They have a, a
2: very good team at present and they have a great generation coming through and they are, as a federation, have been very happy with Fernando Santos. Obviously, he being the man who, who took them to that European Championship and are targeting the World Cup. So I think it's not... Uh, the obvious shoe in that you would expect should Mourinho declare his interest in taking that job now. I think Roger's right uh, in a couple of the things he says about Mourinho. This is a man absolutely obsessed with winning and that has been his strength as a football manager but it's also been his his weakness as a football manager because he has never been able to understand football clubs who do not set themselves up in a way to maximise their chances of success. And he's, you know, he's been at a club very recently, Manchester United, who we, I think everyone can see now that the Glazers' interest in football is about maximising revenue. It's not about winning titles and that's one of the reasons they've gone where they've gone since Sir Alex Ferguson and, and David Gill left the club. And when that happens, he finds it very, very hard to control himself and picks fights and picks fights with his superiors and ends out out of jobs. Um, I do not see him stepping away from football because of that obsession. Uh, And I know that it was very difficult for him, that long break he had to take when he was out of work at Manchester United and before the Tottenham job came up. So I think it's part of his life and he will go back into another job. And... I think there's a reasonable chance that job might be in Italy where his, his status and the and the, the noise around him coaching in England was became extremely hard for him because he was kind of football public enemy number one. And anything he did that could be latched upon and criticized was always latched upon and criticized and, and ultimately a man with his ego, as Roger puts it, um can't stay quiet and can't absorb it all. Eventually, he, he bites back, and and that's you know that's what some of the people um, prodding the bear are looking for. Um, I just add that on top of Nagelsmann, um, another name that I've heard that there is an interest in is Rui Vitória, um, former Benfica coach who who won a couple of um, Portuguese titles um, at Benfica and is quite highly rated. Uh, by his peers and I believe there has been a question put in by intermediaries as, as to whether Victoria would be interested in the job not by any means first choice but shows that I think that they don't have their man yet and they're casting around to see the range of options
0: available for them. Very interesting, although I'm not sure how Tottenham fans would necessarily respond to Josie being replaced by another Portuguese Um, I think they're feeling quite wounded (laughs) at the the moment (laughs) At least least he's never
2: managed Chelsea before, that's the usual Well that's
0: true, that's true But um, we were talking earlier about how badly uh, Tottenham and the other top five have handled their PR over ESL Uh, That could be a bad PR move Um, Although PR should not be ruling out talented football coaches we shall see where Josie's next move is. And of course, you'll hear about it here first on the Transfer Window podcast. I want to take the opportunity to thank Roger Mitchell for coming on today and providing his insight analysis and intelligence into the ESL. And Josie Mourinho, indeed. Um, and we look forward to speaking to you again soon, Roger. This has been the news before it becomes news. Uh, If you've liked what you've heard, uh, please give us a five-star review on iTunes. And also you can contact us on our social media platforms, at Transfer Podcast on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram. Duncan is at Duncan Castles. I'm at Garbo SG and Roger is at RPM Como. As in the lake. As in the lake. And also please check out Roger's brilliant podcast of his own, Are You Not Entertained? Uh, Some superb podcasts guests and great issues and insight in that as well
2: and a great twitter handle for someone who used to be in the record industry i have to say
0: indeed (laughs) (laughs) until later in the week all that's left is to say stay safe be well and thanks for listening